How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On Bucks, your daily Milwaukee Bucks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name. Joining me, as always, is my good friend Frank Madden. And bringing you today's episode is our good friends at SeatGeek. Use our promo code LOBUCKS to get a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, that's LOBUCKS for Locked on Bucks. And that'll be a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. Frank, we are recording Sunday night. 10:20 central time we just saw a beatdown in game two and i told you when we first that before we started recording and we first started talking to each other i'm super sad and not enjoying this um and and you you gave me a different perspective so so what's your different perspective that may try to make me happier well obviously we, uh, a big theme for us over the past few days and when we discussed game one of the Cavaliers and Warriors was, you know, looking at this series through the lens of the Milwaukee Bucks and thinking about, okay, what does it take to to build a team to to be a title contender, to be an Eastern Conference contender? Um, you know, specifically watching these these two teams. And um obviously the Cavs have have looked very vulnerable for the first time in the playoffs uh in these first two games. So um, I would say Eric, hey, on the bright side, you know, the the Cavaliers don't look so good, and maybe that says more about true. maybe that says more about how good the Warriors are than than how bad the Cavs are. But um, you know, we were joking before the the podcast started that uh, you know we've we've talked about David Griffin, the the Cavaliers. Uh, you know, is he technically G- just GM? I guess, or is he technically president of basketball operations? I don't even remember. Um, yes, I be- I think I think he's just GM. Yes, but you know, whatever the the kind of architect of the current version of the team um and you know if if you were not really a basketball fan in the grand scheme of things but and you kind of weren't paying attention for the last couple years and then you just started sort of watching the these last two games of the finals you'd probably be like man they did a horrible job building a team around lebron (laughs) because obviously you know (laughs) you look at the i mean and and it's funny because you you know there was a lot of talk after game one about clay thompson and draymond green um, being very poor offensively, obviously, what they do defensively is um, is is very special. But you know, it was kind of an opportunity, right? You see, Clay hit three out of sixteen. I think LeBron, uh, Draymond was three out of twelve. Um, you know, I think that, that's sort of the thing that's probably the worst thing for the Cavs is um, they had game one where uh, they didn't, you know, Curry and and KD were great, but but you know, the rest of the team, the, the Warriors were not, you know, special, right? Um, and the Cavs didn't play obviously particularly well uh and then tonight we see um you know not not quite the same issues with shooting the ball all around clay got going a little bit you know Draymond was better offensively um but again you know Steph Curry and and Kevin Durant so good that what they had 20 turnovers and I mean some of these turnovers were horrible right I mean they were the cat the Warriors the Warriors were so sloppy yes um ton of live ball turnovers I mean LeBron was just like 
in freight train mode going end to end for maybe not so much the last two quarters, but those first two quarters. Um, you know, there was a lot of like Giannis sort of in what I saw in LeBron, just in the sense that he didn't have to take jump shots in the first, what, two, two and a half quarters of this game. And obviously that that changed a bit in the second half when the Warriors pulled away. But um, but that was interesting to see. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, through the lens of, of the Milwaukee Bucks, I think, a watching, you know, again, you know, for game one, we saw Kevin Durant not even need to really do that much from the outside because he had so many chances to drive and get to the rim and dunk. Um, that made me think, hey, Giannis could play in this game. Giannis could put up huge numbers in this game between these great teams. And watching tonight, I mean, watching LeBron not need to shoot jumpers for much of the night kind of also made me think, you know, even at this super high level, um, there's still opportunities for great players like LeBron and maybe a great player like Giannis to um, dominate in a way, even when he isn't having to kind of step out and shy side shoot threes. And the other thing was, I mean, we, we saw Durant play center for stretches tonight. And, um, you know, we last year was always about, you know, Draymond Green being able to play center and what he can do holding up against bigger guys, what he can do as a rim protector. And I don't know if people really fully appreciated it at the time, but Durant's sort of taken his defensive game to the next level in a lot of ways this season and sort of shown what he can do. And I know they didn't play sort of the, the death lineups, the small lineups nearly as much this year. And well, realistically, they didn't even play it a ton last year. I mean, it's still more of a change of pace thing. But um, I mean, what he did tonight, what do you have five blocks tonight? rebounding you know i mean just it, it's not fair that you can throw a seven footer like durant out there at center and um you know you just put guys like zaza javel mcgee all these other you know typical like kind of you know big guys who have limited skill sets you just don't even play them um and while that is scary in the sense that holy crap how do you compete with that um for me you know if you look around the league and say well who is the guy that you could throw out on the court? And and not that not that Giannis or anybody's going to shut down Kevin Durant, um, but when you think about it, just from a ability to be a, a top end, creative, um, offensively dynamic player, and then also be a huge value add defensively, you know, rim protector can rebound a bit, you know, can defend pick and rolls, do all these things. Um, I don't know. I mean, Giannis and LeBron maybe are the only two guys that you would look at and say they could do something similar to what Kevin Durant's doing tonight. And I think it's important to kind of think about that because we didn't see Giannis play a ton of center this year. We didn't see them necessarily actually do that well. Giannis put up huge numbers, but we didn't see them necessarily have that much success with him playing at center overall. But um, watching these teams, you kind of think, man, that that's something that moving forward, even if it's not a steady diet, every night type of thing that's got to be something in the bucks sort of you know bag of tricks and um i'm i don't know yeah it i it, you can look at it as like jesus how do you compete with these guys i view it as the bucks actually have maybe a weapon that nobody else in the league has that might be uniquely suited towards towards competing with what they have i man for you to watch as much ba- bucks basketball as you have watched <laughs> and be that much of an optimist oh my god um well, and I mean, obviously, the Bucks are not going to compete with the Warriors next year. They're probably going to compete with the Warriors the year after, right? But you know, just from the circuit, like, yeah. do you have do you have like a horse that <laughs> that at the at the highest level could could compete with these guys? And it's kind of like nobody does, but you know, except maybe the Cavs right now. But if anybody does, um, uh, hey, I, I I think you you know, if you're looking around at everybody else in the league, um. You know, you can look at your, you can compare yourself to the Warriors and feel like, man, very inadequate. But you can also look at the rest of the league and say, hey, 
you know, if why not us be the guys that, that maybe, you know, take it to the Warriors three, four years from now or something like that, which is a long ways off. But I don't know. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm, I'm trying to be an optimist. It's June, man. Come on. Time to, don't be depressed in June. Yeah, I guess so. But damn, when you watch that team play, I was telling you this before we started recording, but I just get so I don't even know what it is. It's probably not upset. Just like frustrated because I'll watch them and then just like laugh after they do something and be like, God, they are ridiculous. But there there will just be moments where they they're not even playing good basketball. Like they'll they'll toss it at Clay's ankles and he'll hit a twenty eight footer off that pass. And it's like, come on. Like one, you shouldn't be able to hit threes from that deep. And two, you really shouldn't be able to hit it when the ball hits off your foot before you catch it. And then it'll be like an ISO, and somehow Steph will get loose and throw one over his shoulder, and it'll somehow go in. And then Durant comes off three screens, well-guarded by LeBron, hits it. And it's like, they're not even playing good basketball. And they just have so much freaking talent. And literally the only thing I can think of is like, okay, all right, LeBron KD, I can feel okay about that matchup. Oh, do I have to look at the second matchup? No, oh, I don't want to look at the third matchup. Oh, don't make me look at the fourth matchup. No, please, God, no. Um, and like that's just all I can think of when I watch this team. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Giannis is kind of that prototype. And like you said, you do hope that as things go forward, the, the Bucks kind of figure out ways to leverage him and to be a bit more creative with him. And like you said, the, the Giannis at center lineups weren't particularly good this year. Um, so hopefully the Bucks figure out how to leverage that a little bit better and how to use those different lineups and how to get creative with Giannis and find different ways to juice up bench units and, and do some different things with him where you can have a multifaceted attack while still leveraging Giannis, obviously, um, that does actually make it difficult on other teams because when you watch the Warriors and when you watch the Cavs, they're able to do that with with LeBron and with KD. They're able to create different looks that are still LeBron-centric or KD-centric and play different ways, whether that would be bigger, smaller, uh, faster, whatever way you want to look at it. Like They're able to do that, and obviously that would be kind of what your hope would be for Giannis going forward, that uh, the Bucks can figure out how to do that. And uh, you just hope that Giannis continues to, to develop, and like I've said a bunch of times uh, thus far in his career, he's improved at points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, per game every single year he's been in the league. So um, it seems fair uh, to, to, I guess, assume going forward that Giannis is going to continue to improve, and, and you'd hope that would be the case. So I, I, I will be totally honest with you. I don't think I'm going to be able to be able to be the optimist you have, have shown tonight uh, as we go forward in this series because the Warriors just feel insurmountable. But I guess I'll just hope for... Clay Thompson to get fed up with being the fourth option, with Draymond to make everything implode, for uh, Iguodala to fall off the face of the earth and maybe not be super talented anymore, and for Livingston to go somewhere else, and for things to not work, and for the Warriors to just not be awesome. But God, they they just seem inevitable at this point, and that is, man, just watching it is frustrating. Well, less frustrating our good friends at SeatGeek, right? Let, let's 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 turn the page here. Uh, t- tell the people how to get get some money. 
If if you're down about the Warriors, <laughs> we can at least offer them a great deal on tickets and some free money, correct? Absolutely. And the good thing with SeatGeek is literally every sport, every concert, no matter what you're trying to do, you can find a ticket from SeatGeek. They, they have everything, and they go out, they find all the best seats for you, they put them on their website or on the app if you download that. That's very easy as well. And then they're going to show you exactly where your seat is, what the view from your seat is, how good of a seat it is, and how well it's priced. So they'll tell you all those things. SeatGeek it has obviously been a great sponsor for us and someone in a company that we believe in because obviously we've been talking about them forever and I don't know how many times I've used them for tickets. I know uh, a couple weeks back my brother and sister were in town and we we're like, oh, we kind of want to go to this Brewers game and it was Saturday night and we wanted to go to the one on Sunday and I was like, all right, well, let's go get some tickets on SeatGeek and boom, found the best seats in the house, the best deals, first level, great seats and we did that 12 hours before game time. So it, it was it was just so easy, and that's a great thing with SeatGeek. And the even better thing with SeatGeek is if you haven't used them before, you can use our promo code and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the app, go to the settings tab, go to enter promo code, enter promo code L-O-B-U-C-K-S, again, L-O-Bucks for Lockdown Bucks, and you'll get a $20 SeatGeek rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. And again, so $20 rebate, L-O-B-U-C-K-S. It's that simple. It's that easy. Um, and that's on your first SeatGeek purchase. And as I always say, if you've already used that rebate up, go to SeatGeek anyways. They got great tickets for every event that you could ever want to go see. Um, so go check them out today. By the way, you can get uh, you can get tickets for the game three in Cleveland. Let's just say this. If you're a random fan and you want to go to a game and you're not in either Oakland or cleveland um i would say probably go to cleveland because the tickets look like they're half or less um different versus what they are i'm just looking at some of the games moving forward so you can actually get into the game um game three for 300 bucks or less uh granted these are not great seats they're obviously up in in upper deck but um i don't know i mean like if i was randomly in cleveland uh on on game day this is let's see when is game day wednesday is game three uh, 300 bucks to go f- see an NBA Finals game. I'd probably do that. I mean, that's you know, crappy seats, whatever. Get 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 some NBA Finals action. I'd do that. Yeah, it's still an NBA Finals game. Like, it's not just a, a meaningless game. Uh, game three of an NBA Finals would be pretty intense. Uh, okay, Frank. Let's. We kind of talked Bucks there as we, you optimistically and me depressingly talked Finals in our first kind of segment there. Um. Okay, so with the Bucks, some of the stuff we were kind of thinking about was uh, over the weekend, I think it was for the win from USA Today, had compiled all of the Giannis dunks from this season. All of them. All of the Giannis dunks. Um, it, and obviously, if you want to waste some time, you can go through them. If you really want to go super-duper waste of time, you can figure out how many dunks were left-handed, right-handed, or two-handed. Um, Frank has experience from last year doing that, so if you want to know his system, I'm sure... I already, I'm did, sure that. It, I already, I already did Oh, that, it's Eric. already done? It's already done. I, th- I think I did. I think I think it was uh, 19 left-handed dunks, 41 <laughs> right-handed dunks, and then uh, uh, all the rest, so 134 would have been two-handed, <laughs> I think. I think something like that. I was actually thinking, because, I mean, it's... I told you, as I said last year... You know, all you have to do to do this, I just, you know, count lefties and righties and then the rest are just two-handed, which are the majority of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not that hard. I was also, I was going to also then in the middle of doing um, left foot versus right foot versus two feet. 
uh, and then like I had to stop and I don't remember what it was. It was obviously majority jumping off his left foot since he's a righty. But um, but that's one of the I mean, that that's what's fun about Giannis is he can so easily finish with either hand, jump off either foot. Um, and it's one of those things, especially when you look at draft picks, I think people sometimes overlook it. But guys who are able to to be, you know, good leapers finish at the rim off one foot, especially off both feet. Um, that's a really unique skill to have or not really unique, but it's an important skill to have, especially if you're a guard or somebody who's initiating offense, right? If you're a big guy, you know, you're generally around the basket. You can generally jump off two feet. That's where most guys are better. But if you're like Jared Bayless, you know, who pretty much can't jump that well off of one foot and you're trying to drive to the rim, it's just harder to, you know, slow yourself down, plan off two feet and go up. So, um, anyway, continue Giannis dunks. You were saying, so Giannis dunks made me think of, Man, this has got to be, what, one of the first LOB episodes? I don't even know. It's probably in the first 10, first 20, maybe. No, no, it was, it was in September, so we, I think we... Oh, even later. Like, yeah, For some yeah. reason, I was thinking that was a summer, uh, a summer, like, us trying to figure out how you're, we're going to do a daily podcast. Obviously not a problem now. <laughs> um, we, we need to actively chop down the time that we do, um, but... Okay, September. So we we made some predictions for the season, and the first of which was 300 combined Jabari and Giannis dunks, um, and we we put that line out there because the previous year they had had 270 total. Um, so we were we were thinking, man, that's a pretty good number. 270 is a lot. And maybe, you know, Giannis has to work a little bit harder. Teams are more focused on him. Maybe that won't happen. And I think we both went under, and then I started thinking, you know what, maybe we should recap some of the predictions we made and see kind of what that tells us about last season. So let's do that right now, Frank. So 300 Jabari Giannis dunks. Uh, We did an over-under there. Both of us took the under, and were we right? We were, but we we shouldn't have been, if that makes sense. Like, I so I went back and actually listened to our, our podcast. I think it was like on September sixth and seventh last year. It was a two parter, and we talked about you know Giannis basically played the same number of minutes this year as last year, around twenty eight hundred. Um, and the big variable was that Jabari played fewer minutes this year, obviously due to the injury, than last year. And I remember we talked about it a couple of times during the season because we looked at where how things were trending and it looked like they were trending way over 300. I know a lot of our big ar- argument was, you know, maybe they're going to shoot more jump shots. You know, teams are going to focus on them more. And this was also before the Chris Middleton injury as well mm-hmm. when we did this. So, you know, we didn't think they would be quite as high usage anyway. Um, but they were well on pace to to go over that number. Um, I think in the year prior, they played 5,200 minutes and had those 270 dunks. And then last year... Um, I think, what did they play? Uh, only f- 4,500 minutes. So almost 700 fewer minutes this year than last year due to Jabari's injury. Um, but still, 286 total dunks. Giannis went from 141 to 194, playing the same number of minutes. Jabari uh, was at 92, which was down from 129. But obviously, he played, you know, I think roughly, what, 30 fewer games or so. Um, and so, yeah. So unfortunately, they fell short. And we were technically correct, but in terms of like per minute, um, certainly if they had been healthy, they would have been well over the 300 total dunks. And you know, Giannis finished fourth in the league in dunks, which is pretty incredible. Um, and Jabari, Jabari was actually 20th in the league in dunks despite missing 32 games on the season. So um, you correctly, I think, 
uh, talked about how baseline Bari was not a big a th- as a big a thing this year. Um, probably had a lot fewer dunks just working the baseline off of dump offs, especially with Chris Milton out. But overall, both guys dunking a ton, and um, obviously that's a big part of why they were able to up their usage and still uh, get more efficient overall. And obviously the other things happening too. But um, yes, the Milwaukee Bucks youngsters went healthy. Few guys offer as many highlights per minute as Giannis Jabari. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. I haven't even thought about what the over-under should be next year, especially with Jabari likely missing much of the season. But um, I, I don't know. If they can if they could threaten 300 again with, with Jabari being out for much of the year, I think we'd all be very happy. I, I think that's something that sort of fascinates me is that somehow they continue to get dunks all the time <laughs> that you would think at some point there would be uh, a plateau and and maybe they have found it maybe 194 is about as good as it's going to get for Giannis but man it's just kind of it's staggering how those two guys can I mean other guys on the dunk leaderboard I'm not I don't have it up in front of me but I assume it's probably like Gobert DeAndre Jordan uh other centers that catch lobs regularly like these two dudes don't do that (laughs) i i mean obviously there's some lobs for each of them but most of them are off the dribble they're attacking they're in the post and bullying someone for a dunk like these guys are actually working for them by themselves and somehow still managing to pull off (laughs) i mean getting almost 300 dunks on this It, it to me it's just kind of crazy and speaks to how much bounce and athleticism both of those dudes have. And obviously now we'll see if Jabari still has that after the the two ACL tears. And maybe it won't be quite as much, but the, certainly the first time he came back, maybe even bouncier. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how his game changes. And then with Giannis, uh, obviously uh, everyone always kind of, I think there's a misconception among like some casual fans that, oh, because Giannis doesn't shoot threes, like he's not what an analytics guy would love. But analytics dudes love dunks. The, the, the those are great shots. Uh, and with Giannis, he gets to the line so much, he gets to the rim so much. That's an efficient basketball player. And if he can continue to do that while adding some of those other things that we've talked about, while adding a jump shot, while adding uh, that in-between floater that he can pretty much get at will, if he can add some of those things, man, he he is going to continue to be a tough, tough basketball player. Yeah, the leader, leaders in dunks last year, DeAndre Jordan, 253, uh, Rudy Gobert, 235, so your instincts were correct. And Dwight Howard, actually, 199 still last year. Um, as much as Dwight might not be the athlete he was, still third. Giannis just behind him at 194. Uh, Capella, 163. So a pretty big gap from Giannis to the five spot. And then Hassan Whiteside, 163. LeBron still 145. Anthony Davis, 135. Mason Plumley, interestingly, at 132. And Carl Anthony Towns at 130. So um, may the future have many, many, many dunks for both Giannis and, and knock on wood Jabari as well. Um, and let's move to the, the second over under, which I think is a a one that will be really important or at least serves as a really good proxy for sort of strategically how the Bucks approach, especially the offensive end. And that was Chris Middleton and his three-point shooting. And not so much his percentage, but how many threes Chris would shoot uh, per game. 
And again, this was before he went down with the injury, so that kind of throws things off maybe a little bit because obviously his his minute per game uh, numbers were, were down a little bit um, due to the minutes restriction he had for a while when he came back. But um, we put the 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 over under on three field goal attempts per game from Chris at five point five, which was basically one more three per game than he had the previous year of four point six, and. You've written extensively when you were at Brew Hoop and <laughs> I was ju- I was just going to say, everyone say it with Frank. Eric's written extensively. extensively. <laughs> We've written extensively about, I mean, this has got to be one of your, maybe your biggest frustration in terms of the Milwaukee Bucks. Well, I don't know about biggest, but one of your frustrations uh, about the Milwaukee Bucks is Chris Middleton not shooting more threes. Uh, and uh, so this was an interesting one for us. Um, and, and, uh, I feel like a lot of these, like you were maybe more more projecting optimism than I was, but this one was the opposite. You took the under. You had looked at this too often. You knew that Jason Kidd did not value the three point shot enough, even though the Bucks did make over sixty percent more threes this year than the previous year. Think about that. They went from like what five point four, I think, to over eight threes made per game this year, which is really remarkable, especially given how much time Middleton missed. Um, but when Chris came back. Uh, you know, as much as you might think, oh, he's coming off a leg injury, so he's probably not going to drive as much, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when he came back, he averaged 3.6 attempts per game. So that was down a full three per game. Probably that was just minutes. But even if you extrapolate out to per 36, he was only 4.2 three-pointers attempted per 36. So, Eric, you were correct. Your pessimism over the – over when again, I don't know how much this is. Chris Middleton not wanting to force threes versus Jason Kidd. You know, again, not emphasizing the three-point shot as much as maybe some of his peers do. Um, but the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, at least Chris Middleton, not shooting a ton of threes this past season. And I'm sure this will be uh, a topic we will continue to talk about moving forward. Um, can Chris get up enough threes? He, We know he's going to hit a good percentage. But, um, man, more of those fewer turnarounds from the mid post, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm getting frustrated just thinking about it. So I guess part of it is you mentioned, well, you would think he would take more threes because he couldn't get to the rim as much. And I guess I think part of it was, I don't know if he was moving quite as well off the ball. If that makes makes any sense. I think off the ball that that's more of the times where you're going to see maybe being a step slow and maybe you're going to see not like the shiftiness because a lot of the times if you are getting a screen, if you are coming around uh, one of those baseline floppy sets, like you need to have the, the right agility to get to the spots that you want to get. And especially if you're a step slow, then maybe if you fade when someone tries to split the gap, you're only fading to the very short corner instead of actually getting all the way out for the corner three. So I think that's part of it. And also, obviously, part of it is the Bucks just not really emphasizing that, not emphasizing getting a bunch of threes. I'm, I'm very much tired of making a hypothetical argument that if you would weaponize his three-point shooting like Clay Thompson, he could be one of the best shooting guys in the league. And I'm just... I'm tired of making that argument. I, I would just like to see whether or not that's actually true. Because at this point, it's only a hypothetical, and it, it seems destined to remain a hypothetical for, I don't know, I, I at this point. Um, it, it could end up being a hypothetical forever. And I, I don't know. It To me, it just seems like the most obvious thing to do. 
And obviously with the way that uh, Giannis kind of struggles off ball, maybe him going off the dribble isn't the best idea. Maybe him running around screens is a better idea. Um, so I don't know. I, like, like you said, you were getting frustrated. I'm frustrated thinking about it. I would love for next year for that number to be over five and a half, three point attempts per game. But again, I'm not going to hold my breath. All right, let's move on to the third one. The third one, I thought it was interesting. So I, I did listen to the to, to the podcast that we did, and it was so interesting because, you know, not that I'd forgotten it, but the third one we did was Greg Monroe's minutes. And you went back and looked at, you know, Greg Monroe's minutes over time. I think he averaged over 29 minutes his first year. And we picked his rookie year minutes per game, which was 27.8, I believe, as the over-under because we were sort of taking this mindset of Greg Monroe, playing Greg Monroe tons and tons of minutes probably is not the best idea for this team after what we saw in his first season in Milwaukee. Um, at the time when we were recording this, we did not know that he was going to come off the bench. That had not sort of been raised yet. Um, this was, again, about a month before camp started when it was first sort of signaled by Jason Kidd that um, you know he was not planning to in- at least initially start Greg Monroe. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I took the under and you took the over, but I don't think I really deserve that much credit because I- a lot of the conversation we had was, well, if he takes the under, he's not going to be happy and that could be bad for the locker room. And, you know, I think, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's, I don't know if we've forgotten, but I mean, for how long did we kind of think that a Greg Monroe trade might be around the corner? Um, and, and I even said on this podcast, well, I don't think he's going to be around past the all-star break. And sure enough, here we are, um, you know, not quite a year later, but pondering, well, is he going to opt in or opt out? And, um, you know, again, it's, I mean, Greg Monroe's only been around two seasons, but it's it's interesting how much of that time has been spent with us wondering, you know, how long is Greg Monroe going to stick around? And <laughs> both both for reasons of the Bucks potentially trying to trade him, but also now for him potentially opting out. And obviously, on the flip side, I don't know. Maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if if he opted out in the grand scheme of things. Um, I think for next year, it's I think difficult to argue that him opting out would would help the team given how much he meant to them last year. Um, but I think big picture, I don't know. I feel like we're gonna have to get used to the idea of Greg Monroe not being around in the in the in the long long term. Um, but obviously, he ends up paying. So we, we all know that he was under this, but um, ended up at twenty two point five minutes per game this year, by far a career low. Um, after the All Star break, he did bump up to twenty three point nine minutes per game. Um, but, you know, again, uh, was very effective in those minutes. I mean, I, I think we would probably agree second best Bucks player overall, probably not really by not really met much legitimate competition, especially with Chris and Jabari, obviously each missing big parts of the season. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if we I don't know if you have much to add to that. I mean, I think we all know the story of Greg Monroe and what happened to them. But it, it was interesting that, uh, you know, to look back and, and realize that certainly it was not. Uh, something that that was necessarily a lock that Greg Monroe was going to fit into this kind of role, and it was not a lock that you know he was going to embrace it. And maybe he didn't love this role, but uh, obviously he um, he went along with it. And I don't know if he always had the greatest relationship with Jason Kidd, but um, credit to Greg, uh, he took it and he he ran with it, and I think he made the best of it. I think the crazy thing to me is that he was under our number of twenty seven point eight by five minutes. And he also played the best basketball of his life. Like, yeah. if I would have said that before the season, well, 
why on earth would you only play him 22 and a half minutes if he's playing the best basketball of his life? But it ended up being a very good role for him. And uh, I know I wrote about it at ESPN Milwaukee. I talked about it here a number of times. Just his activity on defense was so much better than it was in his first year in Milwaukee. His hands are so much more active. And again, there's plenty of flaws with uh, his foot speed, with exactly the way that he covers things, how quickly he recognizes things. Like There's still problems there, but... This year, the Bucks were really able to kind of leverage his his ball skills and uh, his good hands and allow him to be somewhat, I'm not going to say a weapon on defense, but uh, there was times where they figured out exactly kind of how to make him serviceable defensively, um, and, and that was kind of a surprise. So um, none of that, I don't think any of the things that we would have thought about Greg Monroe or said in this podcast about Greg Monroe would have made any sense to Frank and Eric of September of last year. Um, and it's just kind of fascinating to look back at. I think, I mean, I think it does make sense you know, intuitively like that a guy, especially a big guy, right. Um, would be more effective defensively playing fewer minutes. And you think about like, you know, I mean, not that Greg's ever been considered like the stereotypical energy big guy. Um, but you know, a guy like him who is, you know, not somebody you think of playing 40 minutes <laughs> and playing at a high level defensively for, for extended periods, obviously, um, you know, it, it takes a lot for him physically to, to compete, uh, you know, and then you watch it like the Warriors and Cavs and you think, okay, this is probably not a series where Greg Monroe would be very competitive necessarily, but, um, but obviously in a regular season context, Surpri- you know what? I think he, it, the crazy thing is watching that series. How bad has Tristan Thompson been? My God. He's been terrible. Like, uh, we talked about it last week, but I talked about how important the spot is now in NBA offenses where you catch at around the free throw line is big and you have that four and three situation because uh, you're setting a pick and roll and then a trap or a high hedge is coming and then they give it to the big. And obviously Draymond Green is fantastic in that role for the Warriors. And man, you see Tristan Thompson catch the ball in the middle of the floor and he is scared, lost, confused. I don't know what other words, but he just has no idea what to do. And you know what? I don't think it's Greg's strength, but I think Greg would be a little bit better in that role. Well, I, th- I think if I mean, I think the problem in series like this is if both these teams continue to try to play at a fast pace, that obviously would not play very well oh, yeah. for, no, for a guy like no, Greg. Not at all. Um, but but yeah, I mean, if, if if you could try to play at a slower pace, I mean, you know, we saw it in the 24 and one game when when the Bucks did um, snap the Warriors record breaking streak. I mean, Greg Monroe was the difference maker in the fourth quarter of that game. I mean, the Bucks had a lead, but um, he went to work on Draymond, used his size and, and really put them away by by taking advantage of of basically his size and his skill set. And, um, you know, I think obviously in most games you would expect Greg Monroe playing as the Warriors <laughs> to to probably the defensive sacrifices. If the Warriors are playing up to their abilities, you're not going to be able to make that up. If Kevin if Kevin Durant is playing center, you're not going to get enough Greg Monroe post-ups on Kevin Durant to make that work. Um, Quick but, aside, you know, why are the Cavs playing fast? Well, I mean, I think I think it's sort of like they need to play fast and slow. I mean, on the one hand, if they're forcing turnovers, then like absolutely you want to try to push yeah. the pace and take advantage of that. But, you know, some of these shots like J.R. Smith forcing like, you know, off-balance fadeaway threes and some of this other crap, like, it's one thing if you're talking about LeBron trying to go fast in, yeah. you know, like LeBron, LeBron, you can do whatever you want. Like you right, can go right, out right. on the fast break, but everyone right. else, like, everybody else, no, slow yeah. the hell down. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I, and like the I, last I two finals, that's what they've done. They've like deflated the ball. 
totally slowed down the pace, and that's how they've played the Warriors. And this year, all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? We can play with the Warriors at this pace. They only added Kevin Durant. What? What are you doing? Well, I think part of the problem is, and and you know, I don't know. I mean, a casual fan would probably be surprised by this, but um, but the Cavs made more threes than the Warriors in the regular season this year. I mean, they were second, only behind behind Houston um they made a full they made one more three per game than the Warriors uh, for this season which is pretty incredible right when you think about the Warriors three-point shooting weapons um and coming into this game the the Cavs had made 43 more threes in this playoffs so they've they've done yeah they've done so well and obviously their dominance has been fueled so much by their ability to hit threes and you know I think part of it's it's kind of a challenge right to say you're going to play slow but still shoot a lot of threes and have a bunch of guys out there who want to shoot threes. That's a little harder. I think part of the problem is part of the reason they're playing fast is because, you know, like game one, they had so many careless turnovers. And, you know, if you're if you have short possessions because you're making live ball turnovers, well, yeah, that's not the way to play fast, right? Then no fast or slow, that's bad. Um, but it's kind of those things that's like, how do you find the balance of taking advantage of turnovers or, or, you know, defensive rebounds, you know, using Kevin Love's ability to throw outlets, you know, that kind of stuff um, versus not settling for easy shots, you know, for shots early in the clock, like a contested J.R. Smith off balance three or something like that and trying to be more patient. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the issue, too, is, I mean, they haven't had, you know, Thompson, as you said, Thompson has been terrible. Right. And I think part of the thesis on the Cavs being competitive was Tristan Thompson getting a ton of offensive rebounds and slowing the game down because he gets a bunch of second chance opportunities for the Cavs. And um, obviously game one, especially it was completely opposite. The Warriors are the ones who had all the second chances. So anyway, not to get back too much into the depressing reality of the Cleveland Cavaliers, but um, <laughs> yeah, Greg Monroe um, solidly under. And uh, I would say, uh, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. We'll see if he comes back. We'll have ample time to dissect that over the next, I guess, two weeks. Cause I mean, we're only, when this comes out, there will only be 17 days left for Greg Monroe to make a decision on his on his op- option. So we'll see. Um, moving on to the next one, which was Giannis's assists per game, and we had pegged it at seven, and I think we used the benchmark of um, Giannis's numbers after the All Star break uh, in the 15-16 season when he averaged about 19 points, uh, nine rebounds, and I think it was at 7.2 assists per game after the All Star break. So we said, what are the odds of getting seven assists per game? And you did a bunch of research. I think I think it was like there were a, maybe 11 seasons in Bucks history where a guy had averaged seven assists per game. Um, but we talked a fair bit about it's not easy to get assists to get that many assists, uh, and that's why I took the under. Um, I took under seven. Uh, you took the over, uh, and obviously he I ended think up... This, was that very much in the stage of when I was convinced he was going to play point guard? Yeah, that was part of the rationale. Mm, yeah. is you, you were kind of like banking on the idea of like, I think they're going to give him the ball. They're just going to let him go to work. And that's basically what they did you know, after the All-Star break. And obviously, they didn't use him in quite that much of a ball-dominant fashion. Um, they used him, I'd say, a much more diversified fashion, which... You know, I think obviously we've talked about the the benefits of doing that, given how many things Giannis can do well. But obviously the assists were were somewhat lower. Um, and yeah, five point five. I don't know. I mean, I, I, let's just say this: I'm, I'm I think those numbers could go up if he had more shooters around him, um, and if the Bucks actually tried to use him as a guy that set up their shooters. Like I think <laughs> when we talk, like when we talk about the Bucks going small, 
that was one of the kind of frustrations for me when the Bucks went small is that it didn't seem like they tried to play any different. You know, like it didn't seem like they tried to really spread the floor around Giannis, even though the whole idea is that you've got four shooters around Giannis. And yeah. um, it, I don't know. It, I, for me, that was a bit frustrating. And even when we saw it with Thon on, on the court as well, it's like it didn't seem like the Bucks necessarily tried to, you know, put Giannis in, you know, the high post or post in order to get, you know, the defense to bend and get an open shot for, for a three. Um, I don't know. So I, we'll see. I, I don't, I, I think in the future, I mean, I don't even know if he really needs to play as quote unquote point guard all the time in order to get, you know, a set a, something in the neighborhood of seven assists, but obviously they have to have more shooters around him. They probably have to think about things a little bit different tactically in order to kind of, you know, to, to borrow your term, weaponize Giannis um, and, and make him a guy that, you know, his gravity becomes uh, something that, that creates offense for other people a bit more directly. Yeah. I think, well, one, I think this is, I don't even know. We've probably gone 10 straight podcasts with bringing this up, but obviously if you use Delhi a little bit more off ball, and I guess even the same with Malcolm Brogdon to an extent that if you give 25% of their player playmaking opportunities to Giannis, does he get to seven assists? I think he probably does. He's a, he's certainly at least close. Um, and I think that speaks to kind of what you're saying on, as a whole, that just trying to figure out better ways to use your personnel to utilize Giannis to, to find ways to actually make that happen. And I think really the big underlying thing with all of it is shoot more threes. And again, you mentioned it, 60% more makes this year. Like that's a huge increase. And I think that's kind of the, the strange struggle the Bucks are in that they could continue to increase by 60% for the next shit three years in they still m- might not get to the spot where they need to get as the league every single year shoots more threes as an entire league like, like no matter you keep increasing by that amount but you're so far behind that you're not actually catching up you're just kind of staying in the middle as everyone else does and, and obviously if you 60 every season at some point you're going to get to the spot that you need to get but just increasing at at a similar interval like you still have a ton of catching up to do so i think in general for him to get more assists the big thing is just valuing the three-pointer and put making lineups that make more sense we talk about how often him and Mears have played together. Um, we talk about how often Delhi's asked to be the playmaker while he's on the floor. Like, all those things on the margins, if you add those things, all of a sudden I think you're looking at over seven assists. Yeah, and interesting uh, to look at the, you know, in, in terms of, of the playoffs, the Bucks were dead last among playoff teams in terms of three-pointers attempted. They averaged 21.7 threes per game in the playoffs. Um that was clear by far the fewest of, of any team in the playoffs. Um, that, so those were just the postseason numbers. Um, you know, if you look at the regular season uh, again, I mean, from the previous year when they were at, I think, 5.4 and a little over 15 attempts per game, um, they did increase that substantially to, to 8.8 makes and 23.7 attempts. Um, but again, they were 24th in attempts this year. I think they were maybe dead last the year before. <laughs> Um, so it's just a matter of even trying to keep pace is hard and to be, you know, to, to have been the median team, Orlando was 15th, they averaged 26, uh, threes per game. Uh, so, you know, again, you'd have to add another three attempts and 
I would guess that number is going to go up even more the following year. So, um, you know, next year, what is it going to take to to be, you know, even an average team in terms of three pointers made and attempted? The only thing I know for sure that's probably going to be more than it was this year, right? It's just been such a a steep, almost upward, a guarantee. Yeah, a steep upward trend that we've been seeing, and you know, again, you you look at um, you know the best teams uh, in the league that that are left now, Cleveland. Um, again, uh, they, you know, they, they were second in the league in three pointers made per game, second in three pointers attempted per game. Um, golden state surprisingly was, was actually only fifth in attempts. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe, you know, if if they had to play more close games, uh, where the likes of Sean Livingston maybe wasn't mopping up as much, I don't know, maybe that, you know, presumably that number would go up a little bit. Um, but they were all still third in, uh, in the league in three pointers made per game at 12. Um, so yeah, I mean, just having that, that kind of threat is, is big and especially relevant to Giannis, even if Giannis himself doesn't become a big time three point shooter, it does obviously affect him in terms of punishing teams for, for, you know, locking in on him and defending him more closely. And, um, I think from a team building standpoint, obviously having guys that can uh, put pressure on the defense from the perimeter and punish opponents for, for, you know, sagging in and collapsing on Giannis, that that's more important than ever. Um, the next one we had, uh, we both got right, but that that's not something to feel great about because we were talking about the Bucks defense and we put the over under on, on where the Bucks defense would finish in terms of league rankings and defensive efficiency. Uh, we put the over under at 15th. Um, and unfortunately we were both correct in that we said, eh, not buying this team finishing above average. And they ended up finishing 19th. Uh, they moved up, I think three or four spots, but again, the trend of the league shooting more threes scoring more points they averaged actually 0.6 more points per possession allowed this year but moved up positions because the league overall became more effective at scoring um and to me this is the ultimate question for next year i think uh you know if you want the bucks to take this next step especially with jabari out potentially greg monroe being gone they have to become a top 10 defense. And if they, if they don't figure out if Jason Kidd, you know, can't figure out how to get this team to play better defense, assuming he's around, um, then you've got your answer as to like whether you've got a coach that can take this team to the next level. I know we probably already have that answer, but um, but especially next year, I think that to me, that's the big question. You know, I, I think next year you run out of excuses with Jabari out for a big part of the season with Greg Monroe potentially gone um, with Thon becoming a big part of this team's defense. Giannis having been sort of fully actualized uh, in his terms of his defensive abilities. And, um, you know, again, if Tony Snell's back, which, you know, is a question a little bit, um, but we expect him to be back. And obviously Chris Middleton, hopefully having him back at full strength. Uh, I, I don't really see a lot of excuses to not be uh, a top third of the league defense. And obviously last year they weren't, um, which I think is why uh, it's kind of weird. We both expected this, but it's still disappointing. Yeah, I'd, I I would agree. And I guess the the thing that's really disheartening is not this past year, but the year before, I don't know how many press conferences I, I went to pregame, postgame, and the the question was always three point defense. What's going on there? Why is it not getting better? Why are you giving up so many corner threes? Like all of those questions were asked not this past season, the year before. And then I, I remember in Jason Kidd's exit interview, 
well, are you going to evaluate the defense and try to figure out ways to, you know, alleviate the problems, giving up all the threes? And, oh, yeah, we're going we're to take a look at it, and we're going to see what we can do about it, and we know that's been a problem. And it's same thing. Like, well, I've, I was in the same press conferences at answering those questions. So, yeah, like that's the thing we're going to work on, and nothing changed. And, and I don't say that anecdotally from looking at it, like, when I talked to Greg Monroe midseason, well, nothing, nothing's really changed on defense. Oh, okay, that that's not a great thing to hear when when the defense has struggled. And yeah, it, I guess it, at this point, if all of those whatever you might want to call them negative defenders or not plus defenders, if you have fifty games without Jabari, if Monroe wasn't on the team anymore, well, you've essentially erased pretty much any of the negative defenders from the team. So it it should just be positive defenders. So if if the scheme is going to come back for a fourth year unchanged and there's the the personnel questions if the if those are what you want to say that they were personnel questions if if those are gone and the scheme doesn't work, scheme is broken which I think we all are probably at that point. Uh, I know Adam Paris over at Brew Hoop wrote about it again uh, at the end of last week, and go check that out. It was a great piece. Um, but I think we all think it's broken, but if you if you were somehow holding out hope that this Bucks team could recapture the magic they found in the first year of that defense as they were giving up the most corner threes in the league near the most rim attempts in the league, if you think that magic can happen, man, the next year would be the only year. Like that's it. If you cannot create a positive defense out of that scheme with no personnel questions, with a freak like Giannis and a blossoming freak like Thon, you know what? It's broken, and it's probably time for you to go. And uh, I don't know. That, uh, it, it, this is another one. It's the same thing with the Middleton question we asked before. Like as I talk about it and think about it, I just get more and more frustrated. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, the Bucks once again were the worst team in the league in terms of corner threes allowed from both both left and right corner. They um, they allowed over four threes per game, so eight point five total corner threes allowed per game. Um, and it's interesting because I mean, you look at the other teams that allow a lot of corner threes. Um, interestingly, the other team that that was very susceptible to it was the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks had the fourth best defense in the league, um, and the Hawks actually allowed more above the bake threes than the Bucks. Um, the Bucks were actually one of the top ten in the league in terms of conceding the fewest above the break threes, which is, you know, a fine. Um, but those are also harder than corner threes, so you know you'd rather bring down those those corner three numbers. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, again, you can have a defense that is effective while, you know, being more aggressive and giving up corner threes. But, you know, again, you're just cutting into your your margin of error significantly. Right. And, um, you know, the, for, the, for a team like the Bucks, which has struggled on the defensive boards, um, for a team like the Bucks, which, you know, in the second half of the season, uh, Chris Middleton comes back, they did concede fewer threes. But they gave it up everywhere else, and that's why they didn't have a particularly good defense. They were below average defense even after Chris Middleton came back. Um, they had some lineups as we've discussed. Some of the, like the starting lineups were actually really good, so that's encouraging. But overall, the team still struggled to to really defend at a high level. And as we discussed, they they ultimately got by on 
kind of winning close games and you know things a lot of kind of things broke their way so um so it'll be interesting to see i mean you know if you get rid of all the guys who are not very aware and you add you know guys like fun and you know you've got Giannis and snell and chris middleton and you know malcolm brogdon delvadova i mean if if those are all you know if your defenders defenders are those kind of guys then you know you you might be able to figure something out and and still have a pretty good defense um with the scheme the bucks have but again the margin of error is really low um and you know again it's not like the scheme is necessarily maximizing that um it's more just the talent taking you there so i think it'll be really interesting to see i mean it wouldn't shock me if the same scheme could get you to you know like a top 10 rating next year especially looking at at how the hawks have been successful um but it really does for put a ton of pressure on your ability to force turnovers with all that pressure and i I don't know i mean it it just you just wonder like is this really is this really how you think you know the best way to move forward especially in a league where you know defending the three-point line has become so so important i know when i was i was talking to adam about it a little bit after he had written the piece and i i was kind of thinking about the floor and ceiling of of various defensive schemes and adam had said well i think the I guess the thesis of his piece was the Bucks should go with a more. Um, he was using car analogies. I think he called it a Camry, uh, a more uh, reasonable, safe option. Go with the Camry defense rather than uh, this Ferrari defense. And uh, I, I started to wonder: it is the flo- is the ceiling of this defensive scheme still top five? Because I certainly think the the floor of this ceiling is bottom five, uh, but or the floor of this defense is is bottom five. Like it, it can be that bad. Is the ceiling still top five, or is, does the NBA shoot too many threes that it's not even top five anymore? You know, I think there are enough. To, like the the Hornets and Hawks are the two teams that kind of confound me a little bit on this front because. Again, the Hawks were fourth, the fourth best team in the league in terms of defensive efficiency, and they gave up an absolute ton of threes this year. Um, so, and and they, and they, as I said, you know, they were second t- behind the box in terms of most corner threes allowed. Um, the Hornets, obviously, under Steve Clifford, have generally been a very good defensive team, but they did drop off this year. They were 14th. Um, so, you know, that team in terms of one that we begun to think of as like oh that team's going to be you know a a reliably good defensive team um perhaps they're you know they were dead last in terms of threes allowed and attempted um so their you know sort of schematic um approach and and they were also 22nd in terms of turnovers forced they were very good defensive rebounding um but you know again it just didn't add up ultimately into being able to kind of scratch together an elite elite defense and kind of interesting you know given that clifford was a guy that we considered you know as close to becoming bucks head coach uh when they ultimately went into with the direction of larry drew that um clifford has sort of maybe fallen into a similar trap in terms of um running a scheme that gives up tons of threes so i I don't know we'll see i mean again i i think the hawks show that you can still be a very good defense playing aggressively um but again it's also not like the bucks have to become like some super conservative scheme like it's not binary you can still you know be aggressive in some ways um yeah but but you know how do you kind of find the right balance and you know do you have a team that's cohesive enough that they can play an aggressive scheme 
but then sometimes maybe do something different, right? And and throw throw teams change ups and things like that, which is probably an underrated thing, right? Like we kind of think of schemes as being really rigid, and you know your scheme is is just sort of set. But obviously, if a team is really well coached, if they're really experienced, if they're a bunch of smart, you know, heady defenders, probably allows you to you know do different things and throw different looks at an offense, which you know clearly is is a helpful thing because if you know all they have to do is watch tape and know exactly what's coming in terms of the way you're going to play defense then um that's obviously not going to tend to tend to help you so i don't know we'll we'll see i mean uh i think that's obviously the big question coming into this coming season if jason kidd is indeed around um you know what can they do to improve that defense cuz you know just being a little below average that that's never going to hack it you know i mean the cavaliers the Cavaliers being as bad as they were this year defensively, um, you know that that obviously affected them in terms of um, their their ranking in in the conference. Almost, you know, finishing. I mean, they had the same record as the Raptors this year, right? Um, they or maybe as the Wizards. They you know they were tied for second slash third. They were only two games out of fourth, um, and they were actually worse than the Bucks in terms of defensive rating, but. The difference is that they were third in the league in offense, and obviously we saw what they could do when they were motivated and interested um, during those first few rounds of the playoffs in the East. So I don't know. I, I feel like I wish we would still we would stop having the same conversation over and over. Um, but it's Man, probably these over unders really in, reinforcing a couple of the conversations we've had many times, and the things that we've written extensively about, and that's saying something because you didn't write anything this entire season. <laughs> Both of us have written extensively on the Bucks defense and Middleton shooting threes. But, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of sad. But let's go, let's go to the last pick that we get. We got this one right, Frank. Um, at the time, <laughs> Orlando... We're, we're, we're going to have to remind people who these people are, but yes, go ahead. At the time, Orlando Johnson and Xavier Henry were on the roster as 16 and 17 maybe they were a little bit lower I, i'm i'm trying to uh, what I, either way we asked if either of them would make the roster we both said no and boom we got that one right <laughs> probably the least uh look you know in hindsight the least uh impressive prediction we made all season that a non-roster camp invite guy would not make the hey, roster. A right prediction um, is a right prediction, Frank. And and I mean in fairness, Steve Novak was on the roster and obviously God bless Steve Novak, but um Steve Novak ultimately uh, contributed perhaps predictably next to nothing in terms of on court. Um so uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We'll be we'll be interesting to see. Um I mean in terms of right now, the Bucks have a pretty full roster going into this offseason. So I'm I'm gonna be really curious to see sort of how the roster shakeout comes this season. And um you know, last G year there's League a, too, baby. There's gonna G be League. some interesting stuff. Yeah, exactly. G Intrigue at the bottom of the roster. Exactly. And that's the exciting thing, right? Is that you can actually, you know, a Orlando Johnson slash Xavier Henry, you could actually keep those guys as G League two way contract guys, assuming they can't find, you know, full time guaranteed yep. NBA contracts. So so that's cool, and I don't know. I mean, we can argue whether that would have made any difference whatsoever uh, for this season, but um, certainly a nice little option to have. And I'm I'm really curious to see how it's going to work out, especially like right after the draft. I mean, you you'll typically see like a few guys sign like camp contracts like like right after um, the draft, like kind of really high end guys who who maybe like surprisingly didn't get um, didn't get signed or didn't get drafted. 
But um, I'm, I'm curious how it's going to work this year, if there's just going to be like a flurry right after the draft of um, teams trying to jump on and, and sign, you know, kind of guys who maybe thought they were going to get picked and, and have, you know, the potential or, or could have been drafted in the second round who fall out. You know, how many guys are going to get na- snacked up, sna- snacked up, snapped up right away? Because obviously you'd love to get those guys um, in the fold and to play in Vegas with your your summer league team so that you have those guys sort of working with your your team um, all summer and um, hopefully having a chance to, you know, be a guy you use uh, during the upcoming season. But but we'll see. First year of this this piece, again, if, if you're not familiar with it, it's um, part of the new collective bargaining agreement going into effect on July 1st. Teams can have these extra two roster spots, which are these two-way contracts. So basically guys um, would get paid like NBA players when they're playing for the NBA team, but then they become more affordable and get paid less money when they're when they're down um, in the, not the, no longer called the D-League, but the Gatorade-sponsored G-League, which of course um, the Milwaukee Bucks will will also have a team in the Fox Value. And I, when, is there an announcement coming out this week, I want to say? Um, a naming announcement, something yeah, like that? Yeah, you can currently, if you go to Oh man, I don't know what the Bucks D League team's website is, but if you go there, you can sign up to hear about the announcement first. Um, they said it's going to come at the end of this upcoming week. Um, if I was a betting man, I would also think, oh, the block party is on Saturday. I maybe the Bucks would email that out to the people that want to know on Friday, and then on Saturday that would be the cool unveil kind of thing. Uh, that they do because obviously at, at block parties past i i think what they had uh, a jersey unveiling at one of them and i'm trying to think last yeah, year. Two year, two year two years ago was the jersey and did they do it with the with the um arena did they do that was that the block party where they I did the, like, think the, so. the ceremonial first shovel stuff i can't remember if that was at the the the, the block party or not but anyway cool cool event and we, we didn't talk about it but um the bucks interviews for gm do begin in earnest on Monday. Um, and we did see a story from Woj on, I feel like we've talked so much about this. I don't know if we need to talk any more about it right this very moment, but um, just there was so a we new name. There was a there new, new name. The new name. Um, so yeah, interestingly, so uh, in terms of the name has, the names have been pared down slightly. You know, the, I guess the, the way this has worked is there was this search firm working with Rod Thorne and now um, candidates will be meeting in New York with Mark Lazary, Wes Edens, and presumably Jamie Dynan. Um, and so among those that Woj is reporting will formally interview um, are, of course, Justin Zanuck, um, Minnesota assistant GM Noah Kroom, who we had not heard before. And um, he apparently was worked for the yes, Vancouver Grizzlies back in the day. And then um, in 2002, went to work for Goodwin. Um, I forget their Goodwin sports management, but they're basically Aaron Goodwin's agency. So he's he was an agent uh, for a long time, or at least worked on the agency side for a long time and has been with the uh, Timberwolves for the last year. Um I did find one interview with him two years ago, which was like the most boring, uh, uninformative interview of all time. Um, so you can Google that, but that was not interesting. Uh, Pete Dinwiddie and his subpar haircut are also interviewing. Uh, well, maybe he got a new haircut. I don't know. Um, it's a big week for him. You don't it's a know. Big week for, big, big week for, for Pete Dinwiddie. Um, also, um, Pat Garrity, assistant GM in Detroit. Again, he's assistant GM, but he's got two people above him in terms of 
uh, Stan Van Gundy as well as who's wait, I forget who the name of the, the actual the quote unquote GM is in Detroit. But so third third line guy, Pat Garrity from Detroit, uh, Denver assistant GM Arturis Karnasovas, who we talked about. And the guy that that is like the guy that has all Bucks fans paranoid uh, is Memphis VP of player personnel slash um, Rod Thorne buddy slash former uh, Nets executive slash former Sixers GM before Sam Hinkie came along. Ed Stefanski. Um, if the Bucks if the Bucks want to just enrage the fan base, uh, they should just continue to talk about Ed Stefanski being in the running for this job because that seems to be the one thing in my mentions that is consistent. Is the more Ed Stefanski gets mentioned, the more people get paranoid about a Herb Cole type type move to bring in a retread. But I don't know. I'm I'm maintaining my optimism that this is not that he's not really a serious candidate but then again if he is actually getting interviewed i, I, I don't know I'll, I'll i'll be quiet but it was interesting Woj did say uh, about justin zanuck zanuck remains a strong internal choice for the gm job with his candidacy ga- gathering significant support inside and outside the organization i don't know was it, did you take that as like a throwaway line i thought it was kind of interesting i mean outside the organization is he talking about our podcast i don't know like is Woj is Woj a <laughs> A regular lockdown. Has he been following my Twitter feed? I did. I did do hashtag Team Zanuck tonight. Um, I'm guessing that's not what Woj is referring to, but um, I don't know. Kind of interesting that that uh, that Woj did did throw out that line, um, perhaps alluding to um, the the result that we've sort of said is is the most likely, which is Justin Zanuck being promoted to the full time. GM, um, but I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I don't think anything has really changed for me. I still think Zanuck is the overwhelming favorite to get the job. Um, I'm probably just going to continue to try to ignore Ed Stefanski and the idea that his name just keeps popping up in this. Um, and I'm just going to keep saying that it's because Rod Thorne was involved, and I'm gonna sleep well because of that uh and i I really hope that it doesn't come back to bite me at some point but yeah i think zanuck is is the favorite and we will see um and i know i think i had a couple people like tweet me like well this is a a sad list or whatever and it was just like well i again i hope that throughout this process we haven't given anyone false hope i hope that we haven't said like oh there's a great chance that they're gonna find a big name and lure him away from a different organization like i hope at no point anyone thought that that we believe that and and i hope we've made that very clear that that was very unlikely and something that that we didn't see happening and i mean this is kind of what happens when you throw together a a very quick look at gms and it appears that they want to get something done before the draft. And I don't know. It, to me, this just seemed like the very likely way things would go, that it would be guys that, one, aren't currently employed and have the ability to interview, or two, guys that are up and coming and not currently GMs, um, just because we had no idea if the Bucks would be willing to pay for someone to leave wherever they may be. We had no idea if people if they'd be willing to give out the power necessary to go get someone. And yeah, the, uh, I guess this all just kind of made sense to me. And uh, again, the most logical ending to all of this is Justin Zanuck getting the job. So, so we'll see if that actually happens. But 
I think that's going to be it for us for today. What, one thing I'd one thing I'd add, Eric. I think the one name that that wasn't in the final, the quote unquote final list, and who knows if this is really the final list. Obviously, you know, David Griffin's been mentioned from Cleveland. Like, would the Bucks still try to try to get him after the Cavs are done with their season? Since it seems clear that the Bucks got the would, fingers crossed for the sweep right now. Yeah. Yeah, um, but uh, but I think the one guy that I know uh, a few people asked, well, why why didn't Adam Simon from the Heat um, make this list? I have no idea. You know, Adam Simon, we mentioned him as maybe one of the more interesting names just because he's been around an organization. That obviously, he's been very successful. He came up with Eric Spolster as a video guy, um, but then took the sort of executive basketball ops type role instead of coaching. First, I would say he could be on the list. Like we don't know that this is. It's true. Yeah, and he could also, and he could have also said, you know. I don't want to deal with this or, you Correct. know, whatever. Right. I mean, he, he also is not a real, I'll say he's not a real assistant GM in the sense that Pat Riley is obviously still controlling things and they have, what is his name? Andy Ellisberg is technically their GM. So that is correct. You know, again, that is um, a person so the, that exists that we that all is knew about for years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, you'd say, well, if you're like the third guy, then, you know, you would think that you would be interested in any chance to be a number one guy, but I, I don't know. Who knows, right? You never know exactly how this works. If you know, I mean, typically you wouldn't expect a team to deny um, a guy down the pecking order like that an opportunity to move up into a full-time GM job. But um, it's tough to say, right? I mean, they, they, he could have passed. There could have been something else going on. You know, he could be an idiot. I don't know, but whatever. Or the people running the buck search could be idiots too, right? I mean, that's the, it's all it's all in play and it's all pretty black box to us. So, um, also, we don't actually know if he's a good candidate. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like we on paper, he seems fine, but sure. Um, I, I don't know. So anyway, we will see. We'll see what happens this week. We'll see. Uh, yeah, how the tea leaves uh, shake out and if we learn more and if the Bucks actually come closer to making a decision. And um, again, if uh, Justin Zanuck becomes, you know, again, if how long it's going to take here for, for a final decision. Um, I think it would be strange. I, I feel like it's one of those things like at this point, there's almost no point in bringing in somebody new before the draft. Cause I feel like almost like that would just confuse things. Um but I don't know. I'm mean, right. I mean, I think it does make sense to try to make a decision sooner rather than later, because obviously there's plenty of things happening this summer, whether it's the draft, whether it's free agency, trade season, all those things. Um, so that that's just one more wrinkle. If you did bring in somebody new, um, what kind of curveball would that ha- throw into uh, your planning for an important summer? Anyway, we've talked about this. Who knows? Only the Bucks can figure out what the heck is going to happen next. And uh, I don't know, for, for the Bucks' sake, I hope it happens sooner rather than later. All right. That's going to be it for us for today on Locked on Bucks. A big thanks to SeatGeek for sponsoring this episode. Again, use the promo code L-O-B-U-C-K-S. Again, L-O-Bucks for Locked on Bucks. And that'll get you a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. For Frank Ben, this has been Eric Name. This has been Locked on Bucks. We will talk to you later.